2: Hey friends, Greta here. Some of you may already be familiar with the very strange phenomenon known as Nerdette Recaps with Peter Seigel. It's the podcast where Nerdette co-host Emeritus Trisha Bobita and I recapped Game of Thrones with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me host Peter Seigel. I am very excited to announce that we are back and this time we're going to talk all about movies of the 90s. So here is our very first episode just for you. It's a recap of the 1995 classic rom-com starring Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd. It is called Clueless. It is based on a Jane Austen novel. It is great. This is the only one that we're going to put in the Nerdette feed. So, if you like what you hear, you should, like, bop on over to Nerdette Recaps and subscribe to that wherever you get your pods. See you Friday!
3: We've been locked in with our dogs... Uh, For six months now (laughs) But as the dogs like to say You don't understand I'm not locked in with you You're locked in with me
4: From WBEZ Chicago This is Nerdette Recaps with Peter Sagal
2: I'm Trisha Bobita And I am Greta Johnson And we are here of course With our friend who we love to hate
3: Peter Sagal And I hate to love you But it's helpless I can't help it (laughs) It's great to see you guys, even on this Zoom screen.
2: (laughs) Okay, so we are going to be recapping 90s movies. um, But I've heard of at least one person who did not watch Game of Thrones along with us or his dark material. So this is like their first foray into recaps. Peter, can you help for listeners who are joining us for the first time? Like, what are they in for?
3: Well, uh, this all began some years ago when we were all working together at WBEZ, and we all realized that we liked Game of Thrones, and you guys, in a remarkable act of charity, gave me a vehicle in which I could gas on about it almost endlessly without alienating everybody i work with yeah it with. was
4: really a favor we were doing for your colleagues and and yes. family members who were tired of listening to you talk about game of thrones exactly
3: and i'm very <laughs> grateful and we ended up talking about four whole seasons and of then game of we
2: Th- tired of you talking about game of thrones <laughs> exactly
3: <laughs> that, that was the challenge can i make them as sick of me as everyone else is and we talked about game of thrones with great pleasure and occasional uh, fireworks for a few years and we discovered that basically you know, the real Game of Thrones was the friends we made along the <laughs> yes. way. And we wanted to continue to, to argue about things and appreciate things together. So we did a season of His Dark Materials and HBO. And then we decided it would be fun to do these movies that we all saw, but at very different times of our lives, because I am old enough to be your grandfather.
1: <laughs> I can't believe that I'm about to say these words aloud. I agree with Peter. <laughs>
2: We thought we'd start with the nice one.
3: <laughs> Thank you. It will go downhill from here. I should I should say again, if there are any new listeners, uh that is what we call patriarchy jingles, and they were composed and performed for us by Paul and Storm, who are friends of mine, or at least they were before they did all these jingles.
4: <laughs> Definitely friends of ours now. <laughs>
2: yes. Okay, so today we're gonna recap Clueless, which is a high school rom-com. It came out in nineteen ninety-five. It stars, most notably, Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd. Alicia plays Cher Horowitz, who's like a ridiculously wealthy white girl in Beverly Hills who loves to negotiate better grades for herself and meddle in other people's lives. Uh, this also seems like a good point to mention that it's actually an adaptation of Jane Austen's 1815 novel, Emma. Oh, Peter, those pups are well, really going, huh? That's
3: that's my <laughs> Yeah, Matt's Dee saying she really prefers the aesthetic of Heathers. Shut up, <laughs> Dee Dee. <laughs> Uh
2: So I think we should start by getting the context. Speaking of like actually back in the 90s, like when both of you actually saw this movie for the first time. Peter, let's start with you.
3: I did not see this movie when it came out, unlike most of the other movies we're talking about, because I really didn't like high school movies. Yeah. Uh like many people who end up in public radio, high school was not the highlight of my life. <laughs> and I <laughs> and I couldn't imagine wanting to like spend up to 2 hours reliving somebody else's version of it. So I avoided most if not all of the great high school movies of the 80s and 90s. Like I never saw any of the like the, the Pretty in Pink or the John Hughes None movies. None of the John Hughes? Nope skipped them all
4: that's especially interesting since they're set in chicago and you were in chicago for most of i time, know
3: right? i absolutely but, i mean wow. i just it was just this weird aversion so this was
4: like a, a very yeah very much an aversion not an oh uh, yeah it, it was accidental missing of the yeah, movie
3: and, and please do not misunderstand it's not like i'm above high school movies or i think they're dumb or something like that it's just like they bring up trauma that i wasn't particularly <laughs> interested in uh, reliving
2: so when did you actually see it
3: that is a really good question. Uh, it was, I had seen it before. It was a long time ago because watching it this week, I, I, there were a lot of things I didn't remember. Hmm. Uh, but it was I would guess it was probably on videotape sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s. I just was like, oh, I should probably watch this movie that everybody keeps referencing.
4: I think for reference also, Peter, you should tell us what years you were in high school. Oh, yes. Mm. I
3: am a proud graduate and member of the class of 1983 of Governor Livingston High School in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. (laughs) Shout out to the Highlanders. (laughs) Oh, boy. I know. And let me ask you too: how old were you in 1983,
2: Tricia? I would be born four years
3: later in 1987. Okay. And and, and Greta?
2: Yeah, my parents were seniors in college. I was born in 1985.
3: (laughs) Exactly. So there we are.
2: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> good good level set. Yep. Good level set, everybody. <laughs> okay, so, Tricia, what about you? Uh,
4: I saw this movie for the first time
2: last night. And no. what did
4: you think? Um, I mean, I understand why it's beloved, for sure. I have some questions, a couple of suggestions, <laughs> as Aaron Burr would say to George Washington. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Hamilton, so that's just going to happen accidentally, and I might have to call it out later. Some traditions <laughs> will um, never die. <laughs> No, I mean, I I don't know exactly why either. I didn't see it on video before this. My mom contends that maybe I did and have just completely forgotten mm-hmm. it, but Paul Rudd is too cute in this movie to have completely forgotten the movie, I think. <laughs> so I think I really didn't see it until last night on Netflix. Um, and I think, you know, similar to Peter, it wasn't a genre that I often sought out. So, like, obviously I saw all the John Hughes movies and some other things along the way, but I, I have a feeling that because particularly like the cover of this movie at the Blockbuster or the local video store, Mm -hmm. would have been sort of so pink and polished and preppy looking. That was just not my vibe, Mm -hmm. really. Um, I probably didn't realize that it was like a really smart satire on class in the way that Jane Austen is, Mm -hmm. which I do now. But at the time, I think I thought it was just going to be a silly rom-com about a really pretty girl who didn't really have any problems. Which it Um, kind of is. (laughs) Yeah, but it's aware of that. And the fact that it's aware of that is what makes it, I think, something that lasts and something cool. I also probably didn't realize at the time and appreciate now that it's directed and written by a woman, which again means that it's going to just be more nuanced. As a story about young women, than probably a lot of other movies at this time were. Yeah. It's
3: also a movie directed by a woman who had previously directed uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High,
5: mm-hmm. which is yeah. another Southern, which
3: is another Southern California high school movie, which is a lot different in tone, and which I did see. And and it's interesting to think like she made Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was, if not exactly realistic, at least more set in the real world. There's that whole important plot about these two people having sex and one getting pregnant and what happens after that. Uh, and then she went to make this movie, which takes place in this fantasy version of Beverly Hills, where they attend Bronson Alcott High School, <laughs> where nothing bad ever happens to anyone, except for a a, a cartoonish like mugging. And, and 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 you have to and and it's interesting to wonder: it's like why did she want to do this? Why did why did she want to make a movie with such a different tone?
4: I also love that almost every character's first name is that of a famous recording artist. Which some of them are stolen from the book, right? Like Elton is a name in Emma. Yes. But then obviously Cher is not mm-hmm. so
5: Dion and I were both named after great singers of the past who now do infomercials. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep.
5: Yep. It's so funny to me because
2: I feel like of the three of us I've definitely seen the fewest movies, just as a person who didn't really yeah. grow up watching movies. And I can't remember exactly if I saw Clueless actually in the theater or just shortly thereafter, but I definitely saw it, like, as a 10-year-old. Yeah. Which was a really interesting time to have seen it because, like, the satire stuff, a lot of it totally went over my head. Right? Yeah. You know? Which I think, like... I I wonder the extent to which Clueless is problematic because I think for a lot I could picture for a lot of kids my age seeing it wanting to aspire to being a share, you know, and having the closet with the magical computer interface and the beautiful house and, you know, calorie counting and all of that stuff. It's like I do wonder how much it actually did perpetuate some of those like super problematic behaviors, you know.
4: Yeah, I think it's definitely a movie with those different layers. And so I was trying to think last night, like, how would I have reacted to this movie as a teenager? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think it probably would have gone over my head, that stuff at the time. And so I would have kind of maybe rolled my eyes through most of it, um, although it's it's pretty fun, it's too. Funny. Right. Like, it's pretty yeah. well done. It moves along. I mean, I think, you know, the sleeper stars of the movie are definitely Wallace Shawn and <laughs> Wallace. Uh,
2: his his love story. <laughs> Um, Wallace Shawn is the guy who says inconceivable a lot in Princess Bride and is in Toy Story and a great many other movies as well.
4: Yeah. By the way, Wallace Shawn is half of one of my favorite celebrity couples, Wallace Shawn and Deborah Eisenberg, the great writer. Um, but so it was fun also to just kind of like watch this movie and scene by scene, see people who I know and love from so many other things, some of whom were established at this point, many of whom got a, probably their start in this movie. I mean,
2: this was Paul Rudd's first full length movie. Right. Yeah. And he has not aged a day since. Not aged and a day. And scientists should study
4: it's it. It's really
3: weird. <laughs> uh, I just want to point out that, the, the, that Wallace Shawn's love interest, uh, Miss Geist, is played by a woman named Twink Kaplan. I just wanted to point that out. Oh, That's her name.
2: Great. It's H- a great
3: name. H- here's, a, uh, uh,
1: uh, here's a question for you, you know guys.
2: What? We actually, before we get to your question, can we listen to a voicemail? Because we actually got one oh, from Danny about Wallace Shawn.
1: I love that Wallace Shawn is in this movie because I feel like his character and Alicia Silverstone's character are like on two different planets. Um, And it also makes me think, like, what was a teenage Wallace Shawn like? This is a question that keeps me up at night all the time. He had a famous father and certainly there is probably some stuff out there of him as a teenager and I'd like to see it. I am
3: guessing that Wallace Shawn had the kind of high school experience that probably made him not want to watch high school movies. <laughs> just guessing. But
4: I also think I also think that like Paul Rudd, Wallace Shawn has not really aged, but he just that's started true. at that particular yeah, age he's difference. in in this movie. <laughs> like I bet at 16 he looked exactly like he does in Clueless right. and he kind of looks like that now.
3: No, so both of them sold their soul thing. to the devil to never age, but uh, Paul Rubb was smart enough to specify what age he wanted to be stuck at. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you guys a question. Is this a... Because something Trisha raised, and this is actually one of the reasons that it's fun to talk about these movies, because of how different our ages were when we saw them, whenever we saw them. Is this a kid's movie? Is this a movie for, like, preteens about a fantasy version of high school that's fun and delightful, and the problems that arise are solvable, and and friends will be there for you even if you occasionally have tension i mean it, it's a movie in which even even sex isn't particularly threatening or scary it's 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 this lovely world which i guess reflects Austin a lot she was writing about mm-hmm. this wonderful sort of pleasant i don't know what you want to call it almost like biosphere of pleasantness in the country where nothing bad happened and no one was hungry and no one there's no violence or anything like that and and maybe that's really appealing to people to think that life is going to be like that.
4: It's a little bit like waiting for your Hogwarts letter. It's like, can something else this magical and different from what I'm experiencing exist? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, the only, you know, it's right around the corner. Uh, I mean, I think the thing that I appreciate about it, they're, they're definitely, Greta, like you said, are those problematic things where it doesn't really, in the way a 2020 movie maybe hopefully might, would challenge the idea of you know, the, the sort of very intense calorie counting that Cher is doing and some of these other body image issues and and that kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. you would hope that maybe some of those would be more complicated, but the movie very bluntly because of the way it's narrated says, Oh, instead of giving people makeovers of their faces, I'm going to make over my soul. Like it's a very on the nose, which to me, that kind of dialogue is for kids. Like to say it that bluntly means that it's meant for a young audience. And so that is kind of the point of the movie, right? She thinks that she's perfect, and so she has all the wisdom. And then she realizes, like, oh, I should try to be a better person, not just better looking.
2: I I think, Trisha, that that's actually, like, the pivot point in the movie is when... Because she's meddling with everybody else, right? She's trying to fix everybody else, and then she realizes that instead she should try to fix herself. Which I think, like, I think it's actually really interesting to consider it as like a subversive makeover movie because especially into the rest of the 90s and even now there are so many you know like she's all that is the perfect example right isn't that the one with like you know you take off her glasses and you take her hair out of the ponytail and then she's pretty and then all of a sudden
4: oh yeah a straightener and some contacts and then Freddie Prince Jr. will
2: love her right and like it actually and they try to do that a little bit with Mrs. Geis but for the most part that's not actually part of the movie which is kind of wonderful i think you know
3: it is true i remember there was almost a literal oh my god take off your glasses your beautiful moment with Ms. Geist, which which i make fun of so mm-hmm. often it's it's rare to actually see one.
2: Oh, oh they're there you're there um let's listen to justin can we listen to the montage you made of voicemails
5: Hi, Nerdette. This is Marie from Fort Collins. Hi, Nerdette. This is Camila from Atlanta, Georgia. This is Bridget, longtime listener, first-time caller. The fact that you are
6: doing your first um, new one about Clueless is just extra exciting for me.
5: I absolutely adore Clueless. We used to be obsessed with that movie. Like, it was a staple of my, my childhood. There's
6: something about the relationship between Cher, Dion, and Ty that When I saw it as a nine or 10 year old, I was like, oh, this is what, you know, grown up girl friendships are supposed to be like. And I've kind of held on to that in my adulthood.
5: And living in Colombia, we used to be obsessed with the valley girl accent and we would try to imitate the way they say things. They're so supportive of each other.
6: They call each other out. But ultimately, they're just You know, they're there for each other.
7: I am a little weirded out about Paul Rudd as the stepbrother rather than close family friend. And I think it would have been improved if they somehow clarified that those two never really lived together.
6: Hot as you are, Paul Rudd, you are still in college and she is still 16. um not appropriate ever 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 when i
7: mentioned to my daughter that i was watching the movie she even said oh gross that's the one where she ends up with her brother
6: and also the ex-step brother (laughs) thing is also weird um but you know what ultimately it's a movie um and the the good messaging wins out thanks so much for bringing
5: the podcast back we missed it so much
3: I will say that the one thing I remembered from whenever I saw it many years ago was, yeah, is this the movie where the nice blonde girl ends up kissing her brother? (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah, yeah, that was one of my questions. (laughs) Briefly on that,
3: uh, one of the things this movie made me do after I saw it the other night was to start reading Emma again, which I did. So I've now read the first 60 or 70 pages of Emma over again. I'm an Austin expert by my standards. And it turns out that- I mean, that
4: gets a jingle, right? Yeah,
3: I know. (laughs) Come on, that was self-mocking, though. If
4: Peter's opinion (laughs) falls in the forest, does anybody
3: give a shit?
4: (laughs) I mean, you're mocking, but you are about to give an opinion of Emma, which you've read 60 pages of. Recently. I read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But one of the things
3: I was curious about was whether that aspect, this weird familiar relationship, is in the book. And it is Mr. Knightley, who is the Paul Rudd of Emma. Is, it's
2: much more problematic
3: is, in the book, age-wise. Emma's, yes, it's very much well, they're yeah. 16 years apart. Everything's
2: more problematic age-wise in years. Yeah, 18. that's
3: absolutely true. <laughs> um, it, although Emma is 21, which makes everything a little bit better. Mm. Uh, but her, it, Mr. Knightley, the same figure, same kind of character, is, if you follow her, it took me a second, her brother-in-law's brother. So the brother of the man mm-hmm. that married Emma's sister. So they have the mm-hmm. same kind of, it's not it, as weirdly quasi-incestuous as stepbrother, but, you know, there, he, it's just I think the whole point is there's this guy who's around for reasons that are not at all romantic or potentially right. romantic. And, and
4: they've known each other since she was a yeah, child. Yeah, i have known right? each other for yeah.
3: years and they're yeah. very hostile. Oh, Mr. Knightley is so much meaner to Emma and so much more <laughs> overt in his you are an idiot. Then uh, than Paul Rudd <laughs> is to Alicia Silverstone. It's it's quite something. Aust- uh, in a weird way, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say because I only read 60 pages. Uh, <laughs> Austin is much more critical of Emma than mm. Amy Heckerling is of Cher. Emma comes across as someone who's not only clueless, but... Almost malicious. She 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 hurts people to, to do what she wants, which she thinks is for the better good. It's it's well it's not it it's really quite something.
2: And I don't know if, if y'all saw the 2020 Emma adaptation that came out, but I thought it was terrible. And partly it was because I just couldn't stand Emma. And I am not like an Emma person, you know. I have friends who have like, you know, they'll go back to the Gwyneth Paltrow version and are obsessed with this story. Um, but yeah, I, I think Emma is generally pretty unlikable the way she medals. And it's something that Amy Hackerling talked about was that she really wanted to make Emma more likable, um, which reminds me of a voicemail we got from Caroline here in Chicago. Caroline actually writes for the AV club and she wrote an article in July for Clueless's 25th anniversary about how this is the best Austin adaptation.
7: Hey, Nerdette, this is Caroline Sita from the AV club in Chicago. So one thing people can miss about Jane Austen's work is that in addition to her romantic aims, she was also writing these hilarious social satires about England's landed elite. And what's so great about Clueless is that it takes all of that satire of Austen's Emma and makes it totally relatable for a modern audience. You know, without the period clothing and the old fashioned language, it's just so much easier to see that this story is kind of lovingly making fun of a wealthy world where people are self-involved and totally unaware of their own privilege. And so even though Austen's novels have gotten more straightforward adaptations over the years, including actually a very good version of Emma that was released earlier this year, Clueless is still one of the best because it makes Austen's sneaky sense of humor totally accessible for a modern audience, which I think is something she really would have loved.
3: Uh, I think A, she's right, and B, I wish people could have seen the face that Greta just made when... (laughs) (laughs) When the subject of the recent Emma adaptation came up,
2: Man, I just really hate it. And, you know, we heard from someone else. I think it was Marie in Fort Collins. She said Clueless was great. And she would have said that was the best Emma adaptation until this most recent one came out. I just thought it was like, I don't know. I just found it extremely unlikable. I think it tried too hard to be whimsical, but still felt really stiff. And it was just sort of like, and who knows, like, maybe that actually hews really closely to the source text. I've never actually read Emma, but it was just like, this is an unpleasant film. <laughs> uh, I, I
3: did was I was looking around for a copy of the book online to read. I don't have a copy. I'm sorry. Um, I did find a note <laughs> that uh, apparently this was Austin's last novel published in her lifetime. And apparently she said to herself in her own journal, she said, I think I'd like to try to write about a character I dislike. So she hmm. she she set out to write someone who ultimately gets redeemed, but who was really kind more than kind of awful. And Knightley yeah. says to Emma all the time, "You are awful. You have just sabotaged <laughs> not only this when she when she manipulates the breakup of a relationship because she thinks that her friend deserves someone better. She like not only right. ruins the best possibility for her friend, she destroys this poor man's feelings, and she just does it yeah. utterly blithely, which is something we don't really see Cher do, right?
4: And I think even that difference, I mean, you know, age meant different things, I think, in in the 1800s, as you're saying. But even the difference between being 16 and 21 as a character. Yeah. Like oh, we expect sixteen-year-olds yeah. to be pretty naive about the world, especially I think in a pre-internet age where like you really were living in whatever bubble you were in, and there wasn't that much access to other information. Uh, fun fact that I learned researching the internet's uh, knowledge of Clueless last night because that is my job. Even I, I, I did it's not feel my bad job.
3: about taking t- <laughs> taking you know getting getting into your turf as I was researching <laughs> things on the internet. Just so you know, for sure. but
4: uh but that you know some of the things that she mispronounces that um that share oh, yeah. mispronounces Hadian? yeah like that haitian instead of haitian she just didn't know how to say Haitian. And Amy Heckerling was like, no one tell her because yeah. she thought it was perfect. Um, but it was really earnest. And just she didn't know that word. And, and Alicia Silverstone has also said, like, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. But also I was a teenager and I didn't
2: know all the things. right. And she's one of the only ones who's actually a teenager. in right. the uh, movie. Right. She and Brittany Murphy, I believe, are sort of the only ones in the core cast who were like actually teenagers when they filmed right. it. Because, you know, so often oh God, yes. with those high school movies, the you know, you see it all the time, even like with Riverdale or whatever these days. The
4: 35-year-old like, high school yeah. sophomore. <laughs>
2: exactly. Yeah. There's like 15 years of difference between the person playing the high schooler and the person playing the parent, you know. Um,
3: let me ask you guys another question. I asked if this was a kid's movie. Is this a woman's movie? Is this a movie that is... <laughs> no, seriously. Can we jingle that? I, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody cares but it never really stops him. His Peter still, still fucking, fucking talking. Right. Okay. <laughs> all of Go the on. voicemails that you just played uh mm-hmm. were all from women. And yes. and most of the people Danny.
2: Don't forget Danny.
3: Yeah, Danny the top, but almost almost all, almost all. <laughs> and and like m- my wife uh loved this movie. Her she said she and her girlfriends in like she is the same set of friends all through elementary school, junior high and high school. They're still friends. They just loved this movie. They watched it all the time. They referenced it. And I have not heard as many men talk about this movie that way. Although men I know love it. Uh, But it seems to be a movie... Well, tell me if I'm wrong. Is it aimed toward women? Is it particularly... Uh, that, the 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 first call you played in which it said, this is what female relationships should be like. They're supportive. They call each other out. But everything works out. They're there for each other. That is really mm-hmm. attractive. And make- That's a
4: 2020 mm-hmm. squad sort of yeah, I mean, totally. approach to friendship, too. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think I think this movie was definitely designed for young women. I don't think that there's any question that that's who it was for i mean everything Mm -hmm. about it from the way it was packaged to again like who was on the cover all that kind of thing and just in general right i think the industry thinks of romantic comedies as movies that are geared and marketed towards women and then the men who watch them are sort of secondary not that movies are meant to necessarily exclude those people but they do have a target audience and a rom-com starring a teenage girl is meant for and marketed for teenage girls i think and probably in some cases girls even younger than the characters, right? Because there's that aspirational yeah. thing where, like, teenage stuff is actually for, like, 11-year-olds because actual 16-year-olds might kind of roll their eyes at it by
2: that point, potentially. I, I think you're totally right, Trisha. I think... And and the fact that it's, like, written and directed by a woman also. Yeah. I think the thing that bums me out about the question, Peter, mm-hmm. is that for so long, so many things were made by men for men that women had to just, like, figure out how to like because nothing else existed. Oh, yeah. That it... Bums me out that that dudes don't seem to have the same interest in putting themselves in other people's shoes. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You're
3: absolutely right. You're, I, 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 when I was, uh, when my kids were little and I used to complain right. about like the fact.
2: finding books right. with lady protagonists right. even 20 years ago was really difficult. Absolutely, And that's one of the right? reasons
3: why I really was interested in doing His Dark Materials because it's like the great female protagonist that young mm-hmm. men, boys, are said, you now need to do what women have been asked to do for centuries and put yourself in the shoes of a, yes. of a opposite yeah. sex character. That's great. But at the same time, it's, there, there, it's, You can make a woman's movie for women and it can be a really positive thing. You can speak to women's interests. You can speak to women's concerns. You can speak to, in the same way that there are, again, countless movies, every movie that are about male concerns and male wish fulfillment and and setting characters in a world that men want to live in. Isn't it okay if that's in fact what this is? But those
2: are just called movies. I I think that's the part that like gets me. I I,
3: I totally get it. But when I say is it a woman's movie, I'm genuinely not trying to diminish it or put it in like a subcategory. I'm actually saying is this a movie that was intended to appeal to women in particular? And if so, it seems like it really succeeded.
1: And it seems like that's
4: what Amy Heckerling was trying to do, right? Was to create something in this genre that was often movies that were kind of bad and superficial and didn't have the layers that Clueless does and she was like I'm going to use all the trappings of this genre Mm -hmm. I'm not going to like just go make sort of like a dark indie movie that no one will watch I'm going to make it a movie that people will go see Mm -hmm. and the clothes are going to be incredible and you know the cast is going to be beautiful but then I'm going to say something while I'm doing it and that was something like that was her sort of stealthy way of making a movie that had more layers as she knew she had to sort of put makeup on it to get it through the Hollywood system and then she could say something with the movie too yeah, totally. which I think is kind of cool
2: you know what I think this is a great time to actually listen to a clip that we pulled Of uh, this is shortly after Ty the new girl shows up and Sharon Dion are kind of like giving her the tour of, of the different cliques they're like walking through campus at lunchtime yes this is great it's so good
5: Sharon's got attitude about high school kids. <sighs> it's a personal choice every woman has got to make for herself
2: Woman, let me find Alice.
5: Sorry, I have asked you repeatedly not to call me woman.
3: Excuse me, Miss Dion.
5: Thank you.
3: Okay, but street slang is an increasingly valid form of expression. Most of the feminine pronouns do have mocking, but not necessarily misogynistic (laughs) undertone.
5: Wow. You guys talk
2: like grown-ups.
5: Oh, well, this is a really good school.
2: (laughs) I just think it's so perfect. Donald that actually speaks to your, like... Is this a woman's movie too, right? You can use a female pronoun and it doesn't necessarily have a misogynistic undertone. <laughs> that clip also
3: brings up something I wanted to ask you guys about because I don't know what to say, which is the weird racial politics uh, with Dion and her boyfriend. One of the things I found out doing my, my, uh, my Tricia impression and doing research was that um, Paul Rudd was asked to audition for the movie and he wanted to audition for the role of Dion's boyfriend, Murray, I think huh. his name is. Because she yeah. re- he read the dialogue in the script, and he's like, well, this is clearly a white person <laughs> trying to adopt black culture, and it's a satire of that guy, right? Because black people don't actually talk this way, right? Well, oh, how man. did that play to you? I mean, in a weird way, when, when Mur- again, I think his name is Murray, when he first appears, mm-hmm. and he's got the whole thing going on with the whole sort of street look... The pants. the pants, and you're like, oh God, are they going to engage in this stereotype? Oh my God, I can't, this is going to make me cringe. But then it turns out that the character himself is totally aware of what he's doing. Like he is fronting this. And as we just heard in that that bit of dialogue, which is I think the first time we meet him, he's, he instantly shows how incredibly aware he is of what he's doing and why he's doing mm-hmm. it. And, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden it becomes... It, it, like with so many other things in this movie, including Cher's materialism and her dumbness and their superficiality, the movie knows. Right. The, the movie, movie knows. It's like, yeah, we know. And these people are still wonderful. <laughs> and yet, look how silly they are. And I thought that was uh, that made it all okay.
4: Well, and again, to Amy Heckerling's credit, to have black characters at all in this yeah. movie was yeah. kind of a big deal at the time. Not that that's you yeah. know, something that we can just applaud and not question yeah. how it was done, but... Most of these movies, these John Hughes movies, these sort of high school rom com movies, very often are almost completely white cast, or there's like one right. token, mm-hmm. you know, person of color who's usually not a main character yeah, at mm-hmm. all and kind of a best friend or a punchline. I mean, co stars of this movie, obviously, the movie is mostly about Cher. We're in Cher's head as a narrator for most of it. But this trio of best friends, including mm-hmm. um, uh, Stacey Dash's character, and. Then having, yeah, having some of the smartest and funniest and most interesting stuff happening with these two characters who are black in a movie that, again, would have been marketed to white audiences at this time, especially, is, I think, a bit progressive in and of its own right. But yeah, their relationship on its own is problematic because it's all performative and it's all, um, you know, kind of terrifyingly... Um, shallow at the beginning especially and then it seems to evolve and, and uh, Cher sees it for being something deeper later on when she's like oh they're actually really considerate when no one's looking well mm-hmm. that's a weird way to have a relationship Yeah. <laughs> but well, again, even, they're like, 16
2: the first description you have of the two of them they're fighting and Cher says something about how they're like Ike and Tina Turner which yes, is just one I of that like, very too. cringeworthy Certain things line, have you know? changed. It's Like we don't make exactly. jokes about that anymore yeah you know, so, yeah, it's it's not perfect, we'll just say. One thing,
3: though, uh, uh, that struck me immediately and, and stayed true throughout the movie, which is like all the best satires, the people who made this one really love the people they're satirizing. And, and, and you can yeah. tell the difference. I recently watched Heathers, which I haven't seen also in many years which is another high school movie from more or less the same period. And the tone. Oh
2: Man, I saw Heathers for the first time like a year ago. And I was like, I wonder what kind of different person I would have been if I had actually seen this. as a Yeah, <laughs> it was so good.
3: And, and Heathers, Heathers is is a little tough to watch these days because it's much more overtly about things that we generally don't find funny anymore, like teen suicide. Um, yeah. But it, there's a, also there. Did we think that was funny? I, 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 believe me, that's a movie I did see in the theater. And it was a <laughs> sensation.
2: Well, I mean, to be fair, in Clueless, there's a teen suicide joke. There is where? Right. Yeah, when, um, what's his, Travis? what's the is dude, Travis, Travis, Travis for the Birkenstock, window? what is his oh, name yeah. in real life? He's like the
3: 90s Yeah, he sort of claimed guy. when he gets his, he, he gets his gets a bad grade and he grade, clambers and up so he and Wallace just up, says, like, no, But no. it's a
4: first story, it's clearly like a first story classroom, I believe, or maybe it's supposed to be treetops, but yeah. <laughs>
3: but
2: I mean, it's still a teen suicide joke, just as an example yeah. of, you yeah. know. But
3: the difference in many ways, there are a lot of differences in the movies, uh, one of which is that in Heathers, there's a real hostility towards some of the characters, that's almost uncomfortable. Like, these people are terrible, and they deserve to die. That's the joke of the movie, and yeah. it, it. Watching it now, it made me uncomfortable, and that's something. Maybe I'm because I'm old and sentimental now. It's just something that's hard for me to handle when a movie is about people who the makers of the movie dislike in some way. And
2: well, I think that's one thing that does stand out about Clueless is that like. And I think it's designed that way. You know, you mentioned the, the mugging, which, is, which would gi- legitimately be scary. But for the most part, the stakes aren't that right. high in this movie at which all. Which is very Austin. They've, and nobody's that mean to each other either. You know, even comparing it to like a Gossip Girl or something like that, where like somebody's going to ruin everything for everybody. Yeah. Like most people mostly mean well in this movie, which is, makes it just like kind of a pleasure to spend time. As in opposed in to it.
3: Heathers, where they're actually murdering people.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Okay, let's take a break, and then we'll talk more about Clueless in just a minute. Ew, get off of me!
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen
2: Let's listen to Danny. Actually had another thought that I think is a really good one.
1: Hey, this is Danny from Washington, D.C. So great to rewatch this movie. I love Clueless. Um, And I had some things that I noticed um, that I had not noticed before. Um, I love Paul Rudd reading Nietzsche, Christian reading William S. Burroughs, Cher and Ty reading Women Are From Venus, Men Are From Mars, and Fit or Fat. Just a lot of good literacy going on in this movie. Um, I also love that Paul Rudd is introduced with the Benz era Radiohead and that that album plays throughout the movie like four times. And I think Dion refers to it as complaint rock, <laughs> which is excellent music criticism. <laughs> yeah. um, I love the Valley Speak. Wasn't my mama total Betty? Is a great line, made me laugh really hard. And I have a question, which is would you want to go to this high school? You know, maybe like I wasn't cool or whatever in high school, but there seems to be a lot of social pressure that I don't think I'd be comfortable with. I mean, I guess everyone kind of turns out fine, but it seems like a stressful place to go to high school. Everyone is very wealthy. Uh, okay. Well, those are my thoughts. I love this movie and I'm excited to listen to the podcast. I was
3: thinking about why the high school is named Br- uh, what is it, Branson Alcott High School, like out of all the <laughs> fake names, why that one? Uh, And it may be because this was Brenton Alcott. Am I getting the name right? Was the father of Louisa May Alcott. And he was one of those 19th century utopians. He tried to set up an ideal society. And like they all did, they all failed. And maybe that's the the reference. Like this is this utopia. Because frankly, I'd love to go to this high school where everybody is happy (laughs) and rich and the parties are great. And there's no real hostility. I mean, the the clickiness is there, but it's but it's 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 fine. Everybody's fine. Nobody's with, trying to murder. Nobody's anybody. Nobody's trying to murder anybody. There there isn't even any drink or drug use, right? I mean, is anybody getting hammered at the party?
4: Not, Not really drinking, there are some and they're like, yeah, they're. I mean, they're drinking beers. There's a reference to wine yeah. drinking. Which is dangerous because it makes people feel yeah. sexy. Well, and you remember As... the
2: coke line, right? Did you guys cut? Yeah, you that guys bit? got oh, yeah. coke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. That's, and No, do you, yeah. you got it? You got anything herbal for me? Right.
5: I could really use some sort of an herbal refreshment. Oh well, we do lunch in ten minutes. We don't have any tea, but we have coke and stuff. No shit, you guys got coke here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is America.
3: <laughs> but it's all pretty. Yeah, it's all totally. very mild. Mild drug like, you know, it's like they say in the, yeah. in the in the in the warnings for audiences, mild drug use. It's mild drug use. And it just seems well, and lovely. They,
4: I think say about weed even, they're like to You know, to light one up at a party is one thing, but to be baked all yeah. day is quite <laughs> right. another. You know, it's just like, even that, it's like, they're not like anti-drug, but they're not like pro-stoner. Yeah. It's like a kind of interesting middle ground they've struck. I also resemble the remark when they're going through the clicks. It's like, those are the kids who work for the TV station, <laughs> oh, the yeah. school TV station. They take themselves very seriously. It's like, oh, I resemble that <laughs> remark. That was me in high school. I mean... I was not in high school. I was covering high school as a journalist. Thank you very much. <laughs> you, you were
3: there as an observer. You were not participating. Yes, ethics required that That's you right. played no role in there.
4: That's why I never went to any parties, Peter. It would have been unethical.
3: <laughs> it would have been. It would have been contravention to the ethical responsibilities of a journalist <laughs> to socialize with your subjects. Oh, you and me. Sister. I also
4: think for the for the mid nineties, especially the way that this movie handles having a gay character, yes. is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you know there's there's the really problematic Murray description yes. of uh don't you guys realize he's gay and they like, he kind of riffs on all these famous yes, famous um,
3: and old style uh, nicknames.
4: Yeah, friend of Dorothy kind of references. Mm-hmm. But then instead of her being mad at him for maybe stringing her along or being upset that he's gay just cuz she's homophobic, they become good friends. And so I think a lot of my gay guy best friends also loved this movie because as some of them put it like It just made it a little bit more okay to maybe come out in high school because Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, here's a vision of what could happen. You could just end up with great friends and go dancing on the weekends and dance with your girlfriends and then also get to flirt with boys. And that seemed like probably a magical ideal version of what being 16 and gay in 1995. Looked oh, like, God. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: that's absolutely right. And I was I remember I was watching the movie. And again, I didn't remember it well. And and they're, they're dropping all these big hints that that character is gay. I love the fact that they want he wants to watch Spartacus, the scene with Laurence Olivier and Tony Curtis. He loves he Tony, loves Tony Curtis. Curtis. And and my stomach started to nod up as I was anticipating the incredibly awkward, embarrassing scene where he confesses that he's gay. And I imagined it would be, he'd be embarrassed or whatever, and it would be really awkward for Cher because she didn't know. Yeah. And instead, just like you said, Tricia, a a third person says, no, he's gay. Don't you know that? Aren't you being clueless? And then the next thing you know, they're pals. And not only are they pals, and it's totally great, but the next thing that that character gets to do in the movie is do something really great for Ty. He helps Ty from falling off the And he helps Ty with physical courage, by the way. Which yeah. is yeah. again a gay right. a gay
4: male character who gets
3: to be masculine
4: exactly. and a hero. Yes. Yeah, That's he doesn't huge. he's yeah. not like
3: the yeah. gay best friend who helps her pick out an outfit or gives a relationship. He goes over and he takes care of the point. bullies, which That's is really like, yay, that is amazing. Yeah. And I can I can That's so cool. see that. All those gay kids who didn't weren't able to say, come out and watching that and going, That's the life I wish I lived.
2: So something we haven't discussed that has been on my list is the sandwich thing. What? Which y'all did not pick up on, right?
3: In all my notes, the word sandwich does not appear.
2: (laughs) Okay, so... Yes, mine either. (laughs) So it's when... So Ty comes over to Cher's house, and Cher is, like, explaining all the things she needs to do. And uh, Josh, Paul Redd, comes in and is sort of watching, and then uh, Josh goes into the kitchen, Cher follows him, Josh makes a sandwich... But the way he does it is he pulls out these two pieces of bread. He takes a piece of turkey, puts it on the bread, and then he puts mayonnaise on the turkey. And then puts the bread on top and starts eating it. And I wrote down, I was like, what is this weird ass (laughs) order of operations with this
3: sandwich? Really? Of all the things in this movie, this is the one you came loaded for bear for? Who
2: puts the mayonnaise on the fucking meat like that? Like you don't, nobody does that. So I Googled it. Oh my God! And I'm very happy to report that this website called Goat.com, which is like a, it might be Australian, it's definitely a gossip website. They had this headline: the <laughs> the one scene from Clueless that makes that still makes Paul Rudd cringe. And apparently, <laughs> this came up during last year's comic convention here in Chicago. Yes, it happened here. And when Paul was asked by an audience member if he had any advice to give to his younger self while filming the movie, he (laughs) said, and I quote, when I go to the kitchen and I make the sandwich, I would put the mayonnaise on the bread and knock directly (laughs) onto the turkey itself. And then he said, I was so nervous with the filming of that scene. I just put the mayonnaise on the turkey. Now, when I see the scene, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Isn't that hilarious? It seems
3: that you're Paul Rudd's soulmate. Go to him, Greta.
2: (laughs) Both of you. I mean, I would not be mad about that at (laughs) all, Peter.
4: (laughs) I mean, speaking of Paul Rudd and Cringeworthy, should we unpack for a moment what some of our voicemail givers have, which is yeah, he's in college. They kind they didn't grow up as siblings, right? They weren't like together from a young age, living next, you know, in rooms next to each other, like living as siblings, it seems like. Mm -hmm. But He's still at least several years older, and, I mean, in the first scene of the movie, calls her dad, dad.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's the incestuous vibe right there.
4: That's a little incest. Yeah. That's a little weird, right? Oh, it's definitely But we just were okay with it because he's real cute? Like, what? How? What? I mean,
2: yeah. I feel like any good, especially a rom-com from the 90s, requires like a certain degree of suspension of disbelief. Yes,
3: especially this one.
2: You know, and yeah, it's like you kind of just have to not think about certain things too hard. <laughs> you know, and I think that's just one of but them. But that's what my, that's I do what she my does. I think about things too I know, hard. Buddy, I know. And, then I, and brand, then I write Greta. about them
4: for the school paper. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let's listen. We actually have a couple more Paul Red voicemails that I think are very important. Let's listen to Jennifer from Winnipeg.
5: Hi, Nerdette. It's Jen calling again from Winnipeg. I just called you about my nerdy road trip, but I had to call again because I love Clueless. I squealed when I saw that you were doing the 90s movie recaps. I actually didn't see Clueless in 95. I only saw it a few years ago uh, because I somehow signed up for the Paul Rudd Advent Calendar where they send you a picture of Paul Rudd every day (laughs) for December. It's quite delightful. Um, If you haven't signed up, you should. So then one year I got my Paul Rudd advent calendar, decided I should watch Clueless, uh, then decided I had to read Emma and watch Emma. So now every year at Christmas I watch Clueless and I watch Emma. This is why Clueless and Emma are my favorite Christmas movies. And I am so glad you're doing it and I cannot wait to hear it on Wednesday.
2: Bye! Paul Rudd advent advent calendar That's, sounds pretty good. Could amazing.
5: you guys
3: because I like Paul Rudd, he's very charming, he's very funny. I, is he adorable? Is he like somebody who's who's makes women's hearts go swoon?
2: He is a babe. Yeah. Okay. And just like even seeing him like wearing all black, reading Nietzsche by the pool, like <laughs> the, and I get that he is not a perfect character in this in this movie, but I I think he's hilarious. And I think the fact that he like he respects Cher's intelligence in a way that actually very few other people in this movie do, I think. You know, like there's that scene where he picks her up after she gets mugged and there's the other girl in the car who uses the word fecund just like casually in conversation and of course they're listening to Radiohead. And then misquotes Hamlet.
3: And misquotes Hamlet and is like, no, excuse me, I think I know my Hamlet."
2: Hamlet. And Cher is like, yeah. And Cher's like, oh, no, Mel Gibson did not say that. It was Polonius. And it, it's just like such a nice. I think that scene was really important to show that Cher actually isn't just completely vapid. Right. And that and that Paul Red's character sees that in her and likes that about her. You know,
4: I would say he doesn't think she's smart. He thinks she's trying to be <laughs> That's a good fair. person. That's fair. Totally. <laughs> Because even in the big ending moment where like the, the sort of jerky lawyer, junior lawyer like yells at her yes. for messing up his pile of papers yeah. and she runs upstairs crying. He doesn't say she's not stupid. He says she's, she's trying. trying to help. Yeah, that's true. Which is a right. difference. Um, and, but I also think that like, it is lovely that he expects more of her, like the Mr. Knightley character. It's not that he's um, challenging her vapidness For the sake of being mean, he's challenging her to be better and to watch the news and to read a book and to to think a little more about the world. But he's also doing it from a only slightly less sheltered point. Right. Like the the jokes about, oh, has he reached his post adolescent, you know, sort of like grumpy phase of not thinking anything is is I'm trying to remember what what Dion says about him early in the movie, but basically calls him out for being like just out of high school. And so thinking he knows more than Mm -hmm. everybody in high school.
3: The, um, the whole sitting by the pool reading Nietzsche trying to grow a
2: goatee gag. <laughs> I'm glad he gave up on that goatee. Yeah, yeah.
4: I mean, in the first yeah. scene- in the first scene, he's uh, wearing an Amnesty International t-shirt. So you're like, oh, is he a do-gooder or is he performing? Is he virtue signaling, as we would say now? <laughs> one, of,
3: one of the reasons that I think the movie is so charming is because, it, you know, the, the main antagonist in the movie is Paul Rudd and Alicia Silverstone. That's like the main conflict. And even in that context, it's, it's very, it's kind because his critique of her is not you're an idiot, but you're too right. smart for this. You're better than this. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you have such ability and, and intelligence that you shouldn't be devoting yourself to these silly things like trying to fix your friends' lives. There's better things to do with your, with your talents, which is nice. nicer.
2: It is nice. nicer. Yeah. Um, let's listen. We've got one more voicemail. This is from Katrina and Nick. Hi,
7: Nerdette. This is Katrina. And Nick. We live in Chicago. Uh, I have feelings about Clueless. A, it holds up. It is still great. There are a lot of jokes that I did not get that I, when I was 12 that I get now that I am 37. So, well done. Also, it is, this is B for those counting. It is hands down the best film adaptation of Emma ever. I stand by Thank that. Thank you, Katrina. To be fair, I have not seen the 2019 version, but I still think this is the best adaptation I have ever read or seen.
1: And, uh, yes, the it's great movie. One thing that strikes me is that everybody says that Paul Rudd is an ageless vampire. I think that he's aged five years since this movie. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it's weird.
7: And that's what we think. Thanks. Bye. See, dudes
2: love Paul Rudd, too, Peter. I
4: love that Paul Rudd is maybe in the same universe in my head in this movie as he is in This Is 40. So, like, there's a fun version in my head of, like him being Josh in high school the character in this is 40 and i've created sort of an alternate universe that is not canon yeah, for that the so. extended paul Rudd universe <laughs> just, just putting that out there
3: i, I was yeah. going to say that one thing uh, that they just said is absolutely true is it really holds up uh, this is the first yeah. of these 90 movies that we've decided to do together and i was really bracing myself for like very extreme discomfort with the different standards of the 90s and things we thought was funny then that really ain't funny now but it really does hold up. There's very little of that. We've mentioned one or two of them, but there's not many more. And I, I think I think it's partially for the same reason that Austen holds up in a way that some of her contemporaries writing novels in the late 18th, early 19th centuries don't, is that she was writing about such a refined and isolated world that had such little connection to real-world concerns that it translates through time. Because even though in, in, in Austen's world they're living in country estates in this world they're living in this fictional version of Beverly Hills High it's pretty much the same kind of place and it, it still exists and so we can really yeah. sort of in, enjoy it for the same reason people enjoyed Austin
4: well, and Amy Heckerling spent I think weeks maybe months in her preparation for this film hanging yes, out at I loved a Beverly Hills yeah. High School to kind of understand the language and some other things and she said like high schoolers even there don't dress this fancy to go to school every day they still sometimes dress up to go to a party but sometimes just come to school kind of in sweatpants but beyond that i think um yeah she was trying to capture like a bubble universe that high school often can be for kids who are lucky enough to not have maybe really intense pressures outside of their school life then the stakes are who likes who and what are my grades and You know, those kinds of things instead of being too concerned with the rest of what's going on in the world. I don't think that teenagers today really have that luxury, if it's a luxury. Because, again, I think the Internet just sort of forces the outside world into your life much earlier um, and much more frequently than, you know. You have to choose to watch CNN, whereas I think we're just so immersed in what the outside world looks like. I don't know. Maybe maybe high schoolers can still create this Are kind of bubble universe for Are you asking for themselves. a 2020
2: Clueless remake?
3: No, it's been done. <laughs> no, Greta didn't like
4: Definitely it. Definitely not. There was a great piece written recently too about how it's a movie about Karens. Oh, oh really?
2: Interesting.
4: Like Cher is a Karen, huh. and but it's not a movie that says that if you're a Karen, you're a Karen forever, and so you deserve only bad things. Yeah. Huh. Right. It's not a, a movie that hates Karens. It's one that says that you can put in an effort and be better, which is somebody who nice. is reading a lot of anti-racist literature right now and thinking a lot about social justice and all these things. It is. It's a movie that says wherever you came from, that doesn't have to be where you stay and, and, in terms of what you understand about the world and how you interact in the
3: world. That's really interesting you say that because wherever you came from, you don't have to stay because, uh, again, speaking of someone who just recently read the first 60 pages or so of Emma, One huge difference between the movie Clueless and the book Emma is that Emma, the book and the character are obsessed with class Mm -hmm. because all of her judgments about who belongs with who absolutely have to do with their social class and sort of class concerns is what you do when you want to do racism, but everybody's the same color. So, like, right. like, this person is no good because they come from too low a rung in society. Mm-hmm. And thus, you, you cannot associate with them. And that is almost excised from the movie. When Ty shows up, there are various jokes, including the drug jokes and her accent. And, well, and, and Ty's this... not
2: allowed to date Travis. Like, she obviously likes him right off the bat. Right. And And is like, no, 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 you need to be with one of these men.
3: Right. And that is an absolute...
4: And Elton says, do you know who my father is? I don't yeah. date Ty. Right.
3: And oh, and there Elton. is some of that, and and in fact, that particular subplot is lifted directly from Emma. Instead mm-hmm. of a photograph that Cher takes that he puts in his locker, it's a portrait that Emma paints right, right. that he frames and puts over his mantelpiece. And so that plot is there. But this the the Emma's obsession with class is is one of the ugliest things about the character, and they. And
4: it does come out and share. It does come out and share. When Lucy the maid, she says, I don't speak Mexican to her maid. And then Josh, as Paul Rudd's Josh says, "Uh, don't say that. That's ignorant. And she's from El Salvador. And she says, well, what difference does it make? And he says, you get mad if people think you live below sunset. Mm -hmm.
3: Which is a funny joke.
4: Which is a funny joke. But also him trying to explain to her the world is bigger than you think it is. And, you know, don't say that to people and then the movie tries to kind of get away with going like i
2: apologize to lucy moving on <laughs> i thought that was really interesting that there's like weird vo in the next scene of her being like after i apologized yeah. i went to the mall oh that is interesting and i don't know you, i wonder if in testing a,
4: the a... movie i wonder if in testing yes. the movie they were like "Ooh, we need Cher to stay more likable and even in 1995 she, telling your maid you don't even speak if we Mexican, don't see her apologize she
2: needs to say she apologized yes yeah.
3: Yeah. One thing that's a little odd is is the almost entire lack of sex. I mean, the sexiest, dirtiest thing that happens is the scene with the breadstick, where she holds it. That's it. Oh, yeah. And by the way, totally. another bit of trivia I found out, they wanted to shoot that in a California pizza kitchen, but California pizza kitchen looked at that scene with the phallic breadstick, and they said, no, that's not what we want to be associated with. <laughs> Good move, California pizza kitchen. And, and that's kind of, I mean... I think I can say, with even though I'm an old man with some authority, that sexual mores among teenagers is very different now. Um, just from what I've heard. Well, and,
2: I think it was different then too. I mean, you think about a movie like Can't Hardly Wait, which came out not that much later, which is you know Seth Seth Green, Seth Green's character, and that is all about getting laid that night. Yeah, well, that's know? a very
3: male perspective. There are so many movies. About, you know, whether the big dramatic question is whether the male protagonist is finally going to get laid.
2: Right, right. And,
3: but even, even, I mean, it, it's kind of like this. I remember reading somebody, a, a serious British author, who said that whenever she was freaked out about her life, she would read J.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. And the reason she did is because there's no sex in it at all. It just <laughs> does. Sex does not exist in that universe. And, and this is almost the same. It's romance. It's relationships. But it's really just different yeah. kinds of, it's like friendship with kissing is, is, is what sex <laughs> is also, in this movie.
4: It is kind of interesting. There's, there's a couple of little moments in there where Dion basically says, I'm technically a virgin, yeah. right? And we yes. can all assume uh-huh. what it's that very... means because she's like, my man is satisfied, but I'm technically uh-huh. a virgin. So that does kind of keep sex in this category of like things girls do for boys. Yes, yeah. also true. As opposed to things boys and girls and girls and girls and boys and boys do together because it's fun for everybody. It is definitely like sort of referenced as like the thing that girls are deciding whether, to, whether or not yeah. right. they need to do for the boy in these, in these conversations. But then also they're sitting around talking about things that they like or want to do or not do. And it is showing, I think, like that girls talk about it of, among themselves too, not just in reference to boys all mm-hmm. the time. This may be, by the way, the only movie in our list that passes the Bechdel test. Yeah. Oh, God, be. yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, these three main characters who have conversations about their grades and about their lives and other things besides, they talk about boys a lot. For people who don't know but about they don't the just talk about test, Tricia,
2: will you explain it?
4: Um, so Alison Bechdel, who's a great um, sort of uh, queer writer and thinker and, and creator, um, basically set up a test for watching movies that, um are there at least two women with like names mm-hmm. in the film? Uh, do they talk to each other, mm-hmm. and do they talk to each other about something other than a romantic interest with yeah. a man? I believe is the three prongs yes. of yeah. Bechdel test. That
2: sounds right to it me. It might not even be a romantic interest thing. I think it might just be about a dude. But regardless, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah we'll have to we'll have to keep that going. The assessment as we watch the rest of these movies. My guess th- is,
3: is Trisha, you're going to end up disappointed. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's well, you know, so. it's the '90s, y'all. Yeah. Um. I did think Vogue, you know, a lot of different uh, outlets did remembrances of Clueless yeah. for its 25th anniversary in July. And Keaton Bell for Vogue wrote a great line that I think sums it up pretty beautifully, too, which is that it's a glossy teen comedy, biting high school satire, deeply satisfying rom-com and subversive literary adaptation all at once. So
3: I'll buy all of that.
2: Right. I mean, you know. I thought it was just a goddamn pleasure, to be honest. It, I
3: really did, too. And, and the various things I've said to sort of critique it are just sort of like, you know, quibbles. It's, it's a delightful movie. It's a movie about people who are flawed but lovely, made by people who know that, that they're flawed but lovely. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it appeals, I think, on a, on a really basic level that we've talked about in different ways, which is it's a movie about people ultimately being decent.
2: It's just nice. Yeah, there's just yeah. there's
3: no cruelty in this movie. To and and we know we don't live in that world, but damn it, it's nice to watch a movie in which you can pretend that it's like it's so pretty to think that's what the world is like.
2: Well, and I don't know any instance where that behavior is modeled, I think is probably a win, you know. Yeah.
3: No, but I got yeah. no critique of it. I loved it. it I just wish the world was more yeah. like Cruelous in a dumb totally. way.
2: Totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Uh, Now that we've watched that delightful, lovely film, uh, next week we're doing Independence Day. Oh my God! Yes. Which I think I saw in the theaters but have not seen since. I've seen this movie many times.
3: Really? <laughs> yeah. if, I think I, I, I do love that we are going from what I, I still think is primarily a woman's movie to a guy movie. <laughs> oh my God. How much more guy. You know, all these little people with phallic things squirreling at each other in the air. Oh boy. <laughs> Gather around and listen while old Peter explains this show to you.
2: <laughs> well, on that note, I
4: think we should just call it a day, right? Yeah, everybody oh. should watch <laughs> Independence Day.
2: Watch Independence Day along with us. You can find a full list of movies and episode dates over on our Instagram. Just follow Nerdat Podcast. And, of course, you can keep in touch with all of us on Twitter. Tricia is at Tricia Bobita. I am at Greta M. Johnson. And Peter is at Peter Sagal. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Bannazak, And, like, the most special of thanks to Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music... For making yet another amazing theme song for the show. Seriously, it sounds so good. Like, listen to this. It's so great. Also, thanks to Caroline and Marie and Zara and Camila and Bridget and Danny and Katrina and Nick and Jennifer and everyone else who sent us voicemails. This could be you. Just record yourself on your smartphone and then send the audio file to nerdetterecaps at gmail.com. Send them ASAP, especially for your Independence Day ones. But like if you have very intense Toy Story thoughts right now, just send it over. We want all of them.
0: All right, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. As if. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer Podcast from HBO.